Luke chapter 16. Many of us probably recognize the title to today's message, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That is also a title of uh, one of the best-selling books of all time by Dale Carnegie. That's published in 1936. I I mean, who doesn't want to win friends and influence people, huh? Everybody wants to win friends and influence in people. Uh, even Carnegie, just, just in choosing that type of title, he, he, a foundational principle in the, in the book, he's, he's accomplishing even in the title, you give people what they want, and they will respond in the way that you want. And uh, it, it really is written as kind of the ultimate self-help book of that day, uh, to help you massage, better manipulate others into order, uh, in order to advance your own agenda is really what it's about at the root of it. From the opening chapter, Carnegie promises 12 things his book will do for you, right? It'll make you a better salesman. It will increase your earning power. It will increase your popularity. It will increase your influence, your prestige, your ability to get things done. Of course, all those are self-centered, right? Uh, Not all of them are bad, but they're all self-centered, so it becomes little surprise how uh, that title, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was listed as number 19 as Time Magazine's most 100 most influential books of all time. Uh, If you've never read it, I suggest you do. It is a good book. It's, it's very sincere. It's very insightful concerning what motivates the mind of the unregenerate man. Follow me? What gets their motor running? And uh, it's helpful for the Christian to refresh our minds how the world system functions, how it works. Uh, because the same human desires that manipulate people for the bad can also be used to turn them to the good, influence them to the good. And a reminder is needed because after being born again by the Holy Spirit, when that happens to us, we change. We talked about that last week. There's a big change in our lives. um, And over time, it, it can be possible to begin to forget what really motivated us when we were still an unbeliever. Uh, We can forget how we responded and even why we reacted in the way that we did as time progresses. Forgetting our previous motivations, that can be detrimental to winning the lost. In fact, I'm convinced at least part of the reason that Paul the Apostle was uh, the most passionate and effective evangelist in the Bible is the fact that he was immersed for years. Immersed for years in false religion. That's fear of corruption. There was greed. There was pride in Pharisaic religion. And, and through first-hand experience, Saul, that Pharisee, through first-hand experience, he understood the thought processes behind the unbelieving heart. He understood that, and he remembered that. And, and we know that all of those experience, experiences came at a very humbling cost to him, didn't they? they? They served as a constant reminder how awful he was. You know, presiding over the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Even persecuting Christ's church, arresting them, taking them to prison. 
So these remain in his mind. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you want to go 180 degrees out, sits the Christian who came to faith at a very early age. That's wonderful, folks. In fact, it is far preferable in the spiritual scheme of things. But that faith, that early faith, also comes at a cost. Uh, The person who, well, comes to faith at seven months. You know the kind. Just came to faith so early in life. They, They apparently can't remember any past sin experiences. You know what I'm talking about. They were changed so early in life, they're confused as to how the world works. Even though they're still troubled by the flesh, even though they still fall prey to sin, they're confused to what motivates the unregenerate mind, the unsaved mind. And, and sometimes I've, asked, I've been asked on that, you know, how young can a person come to faith in Christ? How, how young can they understand their sinful corruption, uh, the, the price of eternal hell and separation from God, and, and that Christ bore their sins in his body? I, I don't know how young. I, I imagine our sovereign creator, if he decides to regenerate the human heart through faith, it can occur pretty young. But when you talk to some... Not all, but some, about the way the world works, about the way the world functions, due to lack of experience and and even interaction with the world system, some are incredibly naive as to what motivates the unsaved heart. They, They just don't get it. They're not wise, they are not shrewd when dealing with the unsaved population, and for that reason, have little ability, possess little power, to win friends and influence people. You know, I think this is one of the reasons, by the way, you can disagree with me if you like, uh, I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus Christ chose all adults as disciples. Ever think about that? You know, he, he didn't go into junior high school and find a bunch of kids and say, hey kids, let's go win the world. All right? Should we stop for ice cream first? No. No, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he chose battle-hardened men and women. Battle-hardened. Men who owned fishing businesses. They they had worked hard. They had learned to trade. They had learned to barter with the unregenerate. They were the unregenerate, right? And also following Jesus were prostitutes who had also traded and bartered in the world. Did they know the world? Well, they knew the world. They understood the world and the way it worked. They knew the world and they followed Christ. A tax collector named Levi, a second named Zacchaeus, who'd scammed people out of all kinds of money. Then there came a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Later, another one named Saul. All had world experience that helped them make uh, help make them very effective in ministry. Uh, personally, again, you're allowed to disagree. I'm convinced that the majority of Christians, by God's sovereign design, still today come to faith as adults, or at least close to adults. Depend upon where you want to define that line. We we usually do in our culture at 18. Um, I believe it's indisputable. 
that we see this principle reinforced in Scripture. You've got Paul, you've got Apollos, you've got Cephas, Mary Magdalene, Titus, Silas, Barnabas, Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, etc., etc., etc. Scripture is heavily, heavily weighted towards witnessing to and conversing with and winning adults. Heavily weighted to that. Don't get me wrong now, all right? We know we we suffer not the little children come to me. That is a principle. We're always scattering seed among the youth and Christians train up their children in the Lord. That's that's a non-negotiable. But outreach in Scripture is not concentrated towards children. And, And when there are children in the picture... Evangelism remains focused on parents. In fact, in the New Testament, we never once see a child being the primary object of a spiritual conversion story. It's always the parent first, and then through them, the children. It's a fact. It's a fact. Uh, Children are always in the New Testament, portrayed as being influenced and won to Christ through the head of the household. Lydia to her household. Cornelius to his household. The Philippian jailer to his household. Even Lois and Eunice to young Timothy. Always the parents, the grandparents, the mother, the father who come to Christ and then nurture their children in Christ. And the the entry point for winning the family is through the head of the house. You can't argue that in Scripture. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. Doesn't mean that we don't make every effort to strive to win children and teach them about the Lord. We do. But the entry point of winning the family is through the head of the house. It's God's design. Parents have a lot of influence over their children. Uh, Do you know what really contributes, by the way, to really great, thriving children's ministries? Involved parents. Involved, energetic parents. Parents who get involved. Parents who bring their children to church forcibly, if need be. They bring them to VBS, they bring them to Sunday school. So at an early age, the children begin to understand that that when they turn Christian, when they ultimately turn Christian, they don't become individuals in Christ, but part of a believing community of Christ, a body of believers in Christ. Now you're asking, you know, what does any of this have to do with anything in our message? And I'm not sure, but let's continue. Oh yeah, we need to be shrewd. We need to be shrewd in the world to win friends and influence people of the world, adults of the world, parents of the world that we engage. The word shrewd in our passage means wise, clever. Can we even be mean in us in a sense cunning? Just being shrewd. Understanding the world. Uh, we must understand how the world works, how how motivations to the human heart works or work, excuse me, when adults believe they bring their whole families to church. And through, our, uh, through that, our children's ministry flourish. Um, we can't, what I'm trying to say is we can't take our focus off winning adults because Scripture doesn't. Scripture doesn't. 
so for these two weeks, this Sunday and the next Sunday, uh, they both concern shrewdly using the resources that we have, the resources we enjoy uh, by the blessing of God to win the favor of others. And these verses play a special, uh, place a special focus upon the use of our finances to do just that. Yes, that unrighteous mammon, right? Dirty money, dirty money. And then starting June 2nd, we'll have an introduction to our summer series of Timeless Ten. Before I begin reading in verse 1, chapter 16, I, I think it would help that you understand and this, and this parable about money, the dirty use of money, that you first recognize that the rich man, the master, some would refer to him, uh, some translations, I believe, use the term Lord. Uh, it does not symbolize God. It does not represent even a believer. The master symbolizes an unbeliever, an unbeliever who lives far off but owns a large estate. So he hires a manager, a manager to manage the land uh, which he only checks on every once in a while. You know, back when growing up on the farm, uh, we, uh, we referred to this rich person who owned the land, uh, the, the one who lived far off in the big city, and, and they drove a big fancy Cadillac, and, and, and they only visited uh, their land every other year or so. We referred to them as a landlord, right? A landlord. Uh, so that should make it easier uh, to be clear as we read along. Luke 16, verse 1. Now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called, uh, called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, well, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the management of uh, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And the manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly, write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master, follow this, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, says Jesus, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Wow, that, that is an earful right there. That's an earful. I think you're going to discover uh, in just a few minutes that this parable isn't nearly as difficult as it first appears to be. Um, the first thing that we need to note is that Jesus now turns to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. Previously, in the end of chapter 15, he was speaking to the Pharisees, those who were unsaved. Uh, and, and though uh, verse 14 indicates that the Pharisees are still here in the picture, they're still present, listening, Jesus is now addressing those who follow him. 
the disciples, committed to following him. So, so this is the beginning of a different teaching paradigm for Christ uh, from the one that we just saw in chapter 15, though it is still concerning the use of money. The prodigal son portrayed a wasteful usage of money. The manager represents a shrewd or a cunning use of money, using his influence to gain the favor of others. Uh, This world analogy shows a man managing his landlord's estate, uh, using wealth that is not his own. But it belongs to his Lord. In order, he, he manages it in order to win friends and influence people. Who else here is managing wealth that is not our own, but belongs to our Lord? And in that eternal sense, we are, we are all stewards of what God has given us. We're all stewards. Um, let's look at the behavior of this unjust steward first. And a little later we'll describe the desire, desired behavior of a just steward, a good steward. And, and that will carry us all the way through uh, next week, verse 13, the conclusion next week. In verse 1, and an unrighteous steward gets reported for wasting his landlord's estate. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called the manager and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Settle up the books, is what he's saying. Uh, This unsaved landlord, probably unethical even himself, we'll talk about that a little bit later, heard how wasteful his manager was being with his estate. He's just squandering it, wasting it, throwing it away. So, So he tells him, gather up your receipts. You can't be my manager any longer. There's going to be an accounting. And my, my impression is, I could be wrong, but my impression is that this landlord first believes that, that his manager is just extremely careless. Really careless, uh, incompetent maybe. Or an unwise manager, just not good with what he's doing. Careless manager. But he's soon going to discover that this manager is very wise, very deceitful, very shrewd, uh, very dishonest. And the thought of having to, to transition to earn an honest living that causes the manager to panic. It does. So, so he starts scheming. He schemes to himself in verse 3 saying, well, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. You know, th- this, this man is probably middle-aged. I look at this, I'm thinking about 50 I do. I think about this, and he's like, I'm not strong enough to dig. How many people, midlife, middle-age, I'm 50, go back to, after they've been out in something white-collar for a while, go back and grab a shovel and jump in with the 20-year-olds? Not many. Not many. So, so being a white-collar manager, he correctly concludes, I can't return to manual labor. That ain't going to happen. That's not a future. There's no future trajectory 
from middle age on in going back to manual labor, though it may pay the bills for a while. But digging a ditch is hard work, hard, hard work. He's also too proud to beg for money. So he says, I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He's scheming. He decides he's going to buy favor with his boss's money. Folks, I know as Christians you're probably, if you're Christians here, you're cleansed in righteousness, you know, dressed white as snow. I realize that none of us here would ever soil our garments in this way, uh, anything unethical like this, but I assure you, this is how the unsaved world works. From Wall Street to Main Street, from the airfields to the farm fields, from Hollywood to the backwoods, this is the way it works, scheming. Society is awash in corruption, awash in it. Agreed is good, said Gordon Gecko, right? The movie Wall Street, it's not good, but that's what he said. People ate it up. They loved it. And if you have access to money, matters not if it is your own money or, or money that you manage for someone else, that belongs to someone else. In the unsaved system, people use the influence of money to get their own way. That's, that's why it is referred to as unra- unrighteous mammon or the wealth of unrighteousness. Uh, it, it's not that money itself is evil. Money itself is neutral. It can be used for the good uh, or it can be used for bad. It's not the root of all evil, as it's sometimes said. It is a root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6. And, and in the unsafe sphere of influence among unbelievers, money is always used for selfish motives. Follow along. Even if it is donated in order to have your name put up in big lights on the top of an addition to a hospital. It's still a selfish motive. That's one of the reasons, by the way, Jesus tells us that we do our giving in secret. We don't name estates after ourselves. There's always a selfish motive to money and giving in the unsaved realm. Always self. So, for that reason, all money that interacts with, all money that motivates that unsaved world can primarily, it, it can be categorized as unrighteous. Just working in the non-Christian sphere, sphere the non-spiritual uh, influence. Anything outside of that, engaging outside of that, where it's, just, it's just unrighteous mammon. Uh, we know, I think you know this, you're all pretty smart people, we know that the motive of the car salesman is not to put you in the safest and most reliable car, right? You, you figure that out. Yeah. No, that may be a secondary motive. He, he may be uh, proud of what he uh, represents as far as a good line of cars, uh, but his first priority is not to serve you. He wants a commission. He wants a commission first. That, that salesman would not be sitting in the sun waiting for you to pull into the dealership if he wasn't going to get something out of it. He would not be there. You know, you know I have to bring up quickly what, what is just really, and it is Find Your Ministry Month, so I, I suppose it's timely. One thing Gerald and I talk about that we love, and it's very hard, it's very difficult, completely uh, 
different challenge. But the church volunteering, we, we, never, we don't have anything financial to offer them. We can't go, you know, if you're a business owner, you're like, well, I hold the paycheck. And they have to come and do what I want or, or else they don't get the paycheck. That's the way the world works. It's always about money. For us, we're like, if there aren't volunteers, it just ain't getting done. So we get to see the Holy Spirit motivate people and people to rise up to serve Christ in a completely different sphere that isn't selfish because it is guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, but it doesn't work that way in the unsaved world. There's always a motive about money in the unsaved world. Likewise, if you have control of money, you use it to your own advantage. Everybody knows that. that that's why no one is really shocked uh, when, a, when a family is accused of, of uh, paying off a school or a coach in order to get their kids admitted on a crew scholarship or whatever it is, you know, rowing. Nobody's really that surprised. Nobody's even that surprised they've gotten away with it for years because in actuality... They've been getting away with it for generations and generations. That's the way the world works. Money talks. Um, we're not surprised because previous to knowing Christ, we remember our own motivations. Ultimately, they were self-directed. Um, it's harder for someone who comes to faith very early in life. And they ask, what do you mean? You mean no one does good? I'm like, Yeah, that's what Scripture says. Not even one. No one. No one previous to Christ um, the first question of the lost soul is always, in the end, how will it affect me? How will it affect me? doesn't matter whether you're a lawyer, um, whether you're part of a false religion, soldier, uh, worker in the field, whatever it is, how will I be remembered? How will I be thought of? What will it put in my pocket? What, what, how will it benefit me? Friends, believe it when Scripture says the heart full is deceitful. The heart is deceitful of all else, above all else, uh, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is sick. The heart is truly sick. Um, in the unregenerate sphere of the world, money wins friends and it buys influence. The manager knows this. So in verse 5, the manager summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying, saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take, down your, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. The unjust manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. And, and if you think to yourself, you know, I just can't believe that these... These debtors, these people would go along with that. Oh, that's naive. That's naive. Um, folks, when you observe the business realm and uh, interacting with the business realm, even as a believer, the, the, corruption, the corruption. Even what I saw at Delta over 16 years there as a mechanic in a hangar, but you got to see a lot of the in-workings and how things were done, how things, how contracts were bid and how things, uh, how things were won in that regard. It, it is shocking. It is shocking what goes on in the business realm. It's, it's one of the reasons um, 
it's so hard for a Christian to, to interact with them. It's so tough in order to get involved because if someone's giving kickbacks and you've got to go in and do it honest, it's a tough road for the Christian. But we bear that cross um, to serve him and be a good witness to him. Um, the other thing that quickly becomes evidence, everybody's in on it. Everybody's in on it. It's just really crazy. I came to faith in my early 30s, uh, but boy, I'm just really shocked, really. <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough of what I saw uh, previous to that and, and even still today. Uh, you, you know, you think that the Ten Commands would be enough. You really would. Love God and love your neighbor. You think you could just do it in ten. But it doesn't work that way. That, that's why we have um, codified law. You go into any law school and you look and, and it's, it, it's bookcases from floor to ceiling, 15 feet high with a ladder, cases and cases and cases of legal code. Ever think why? You ever think why? It's because man just keep, keeps coming up with more and more ideas how to cheat. Once one thing's outlawed, they find another way to get around it. When there's more time, they think harder. That's, that's why some, some criminals really per, uh, perfect their craft while in prison. They got a lot of time to think about it. In fact, you think about that. We're studying Genesis in the men's group on Wednesdays, and we went through Noah, and it talked about their lifespan back then, the age of their lifespan, and how they had, the world had become so corrupted can you imagine an unsaved person if they had seven or eight hundred years to think about how they could scheme their neighbor? Think about how dark it could get. Wow, no wonder God said, you know, that, I ain't going to let this happen again. We're going to limit it to 120 max. You know, cuts them off before, you know, we start getting old before we really get really good, most of us. Um, but yeah, I'm, t- I'm telling you. It, uh, it, it just really is alive when you read Scripture and God's like, man, this is just, the world's just completely corrupt. I've gotta, I can't give these people that much time to think about how to do wrong. Oh, well, this, this, land, uh, this land manager, with them, these debtors are more than happy to erase the debt since he has legal authority to, to act on the owner's behalf and conduct business. These debtors are more than happy to erase those debts. It was a huge amount of money. Huge amount of money. I looked over some uh, real reputable resources that went back to this day and calculated the grain and the measures and everything. And, and uh, that, the dollar figure in that day would have added up to approximately three years' worth of salary. Well, that ain't, that, that, that's not a bad severance package. Three years' cash or, or at least credit. Uh, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It, it, which makes verse 8 perhaps... Perhaps just the, the most difficult to understand, uh, difficult part of the passage to understand, I'll, I'll do my best. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. You, you know, how could that be? How could that be? You know, there's only one reasonable answer. The unrighteous manager had an unrighteous master. And that master was impressed by that manager's ability to manipulate the system to gain his own personal advantage. Did the master lose a, a large sum of money? Yes. But in a real, ca- real world scenario, 
a hands-off landlord like that probably had lots of other investments as well if he never came around, never saw what was really going on. He probably had lots of other large investments. Uh, surely this scheme didn't put him in the poorhouse or he would have not praised the shrewd manager. Uh, the fact remains, in reality, people in the world are fascinated by others who can manipulate money uh, and take advantage of the world. It is why the movie Wall Street with Gordon Gecko again, it's why it was such a smash hit, a blockbuster hit. People are enthralled, fascinated by watching what other people can do for evil. Have you ever, um, have you ever watched the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio? It's a fascinating story. It's a depiction of of a, a true story of a man named Frank Abagnale Jr. who uh, began at age 15, but by age 18 had become an imposter, all right? He fabricated identities, he counterfeited diplomas, he forged Pan Am Airlines payroll checks payable to himself. He, he, uh, he faked being a doctor and got uh, hired on into a hospital, faked being a co-pilot of an airplane and got hired on with an airline, um, he robbed banks. Just a, a fascinating story of how he was able to manipulate the working financial system, the world system. Uh, it took the FBI years to catch up with him. Years to catch up with him. And do you know after doing so, after they caught up to him, do you know what they did? They hired him. Man, you're really good. They, they hired him as an advisor, the FBI. I, I wonder in our parable, actually, if this landlord, after seeing how shrewd his manager is, didn't, didn't contemplate hiring him back. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's just really the world is that messed up. What is the point Jesus is trying to make? Um, I, think, I think he spells it out in the middle of verse 8 quite clearly. The sons of this age... The unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, the unregenerate, the sons of this age are more shrewd, more cunning, more sharp, more industrious in relation to their own kind, that means the unsaved people, than are the sons of light. That's us. They conspire, they, they exert much effort to get ahead. The, this unrighteous steward was determined was determined that the wealth delegated to him was going to benefit him down the road after his boss came to audit the books. Well, the sons of light, referring to believers by comparison, were kind of dense sometimes. We forget how the world system works. We become ho-hum, humdrum. Uh, we fail to harness the full potential of what God has entrusted us with. We fail to do that, um, at least to its fullest potential. It's almost as if we can relax, almost fall asleep, and we fail to use the money that is entrusted to us, which is all of it that we make. The money entrusted to us, we fail to use it and its inherent influence in a way that there will remain friends in heaven for us to enjoy the day after our master comes and checks our books. 
You know, it never, it never ceases to astonish me. This is, this is just honest. You're looking at Scripture. Never ceases to astonish me how generous Christ is towards His disciples. How He wants us to have the greatest experience in heaven. The greatest eternal life there is. He says, pretty much forget about this life because it's passing away, right? He's always taking our focus away from this life and what we can acquire and amass and achieve in this life and transfer it to the next life. That'll be more next week. But Christ wants us to have the best possible experience in heaven. He loves his disciples. He's concerned, really, he is concerned about your future. He is so concerned about each of our future and the, and, and the quality of our experience in heaven. Because our experience here, your experience here, it, 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 that'll end soon enough, all right? That'll end soon enough. And then there will be an accounting for our management. Uh, the world will fail. Our life will fail. So Jesus suggests in verse 9, prepare for an audit. Prepare for an audit. How do we do that? Well, first off, we realize managing Christ's estate for His advantage. For His advantage. Not our own advantage like this unrighteous guy. Managing Christ's estate for His advantage eventually becomes our advantage. When we use the wealth that He has entrusted to us with an end game in mind. Thinking in the end. Um, In verse 9, Jesus explains to his disciples now. And I say to you. This is his point of application. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Use your wealth. That which engages with the unsaved world, that wealth of unrighteousness, that which is exhausted interacting with the fallen world, to make friends. Make eternal friends. So that when the money fails, or or perhaps your translation says when life fails, doesn't matter which one, both money and life are going to fail. It's okay. Then when it fails, then those friends you have made on earth will receive you as guests into their heavenly homes. doesn't take a genius to understand the principle. The, the unrighteous steward used his boss's estate to buy friends so that after the boss, after his boss returned to settle things up, he would be welcomed into their homes. The Christian uses the wealth delegated to him or her by our master to buy friends so that after Christ returns, those friends are in heaven and they will welcome us into their eternal heavenly homes. This this is an important principle to be aware of. Jesus insists how we use our money can serve as an influence to win people to Christ. I, can, I suppose it can also dissuade how, depending upon how we use our money. But how we use our money is an influence to win people to Christ. You know, we recently bought a sofa. 
Rita and I bought a sofa. That, that salesman, he was a funny guy. He, he was a funny guy. Um, he gave us all the lines. He told us how he wants us to be happy. He wants us to have a great, you know, long-lasting sofa. He, he, and he really wants to give us a great deal. Great deal. And, and we really know he wants his commission, right? We, we understand that. He needs to pay his mortgage. He has children that he needs to feed. So he is massaging us to make a deal. So we turn on him. We showed concern about him, how much we, we liked him. And how are your kids? You got kids? What about your wife? Oh, she works here? Where does she work? And you show interest in people, and, and we, we compliment him on all kinds of things that, that are very honest and genuine in many ways. Uh, he couldn't believe how polite we were, how concerned we were. We, we assured him we didn't want it too cheap. I said, hey, you're going to get something out of this, I hope. You know, you know, and they just love that. They, they, they love knowing there's a concern for them, even though we're both working to get the best deal. You know, that deal closed a few weeks ago. We, we formed a relationship with him. Uh, uh, we're still working on that. But, but in this society, when you go back to ancient Israel, everything was bartered. It wasn't run the visa, it just goes to your account and, and a teller hands it to you. When, when, you, were, when you were spending money or, or buying things, whether it would be oil for your lamp or clothes or, or someone, they were bartering. They were always, always back and forth on, uh, you go to some cultures today, I know in Brazil, her mother, Rita's mom goes to the market down there and they're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's still very common in those cultures. Today we're a prosperous society, we just, just run it on the visa. But folks... The, the, the opportunities that we have when we're engaged with people, whether it's buying a car, whether it's buying a sofa, wh- whether it's, it's uh, w- whatever it may be, however we engage with money, they are always opportunities for an open door to the gospel. I know this man was concerned about, about taking care of his family. Why don't we show some concern about taking care of his family? him, her, whoever it is we are talking to. Uh, I think you're getting the picture. You know, Dave, Dale Carnegie acknowledges in his book that we should recognize that everybody we encountered isn't concerned about what they are going to get out of it. He said, you know, talk to someone uh, about themselves and they will listen for hours. <laughs> That's a fact, isn't it? Be shrewd, folks, in how the world works. Be sharp. When you engage others, when you're dealing with others, show concern uh, that a door might open to Christ, to God's advantage. Because, because we know, we don't have to be that concerned about it. We, we read Jeremiah 17, 9. We know the principles of Scripture. God's going to nourish us, right? We're going to stay green. He's going to take care of the righteous person. He, he's going to provide us food and covering. We don't have to be concerned about always winning. Though it's fun to win, I'll admit that. Uh, remember to share the gospel. Remember to share the gospel. And when we share the gospel with him, he's, when we see him in heaven, her in heaven, that person's going to say, I remember them. They, they had concern for me. They shared the gospel with me. And they're going to tell us, hey, when we come in, come into my place, we're going to have some cake when we get to heaven. I, I think you get it. Uh, our passage is going to get a little more practical 
uh, next week in part two. Let's pray.